0: And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancock's and Bernice Miller Travis.
1: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meats, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities, where we discuss ways to create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Our guest today is Kemble Pope. Kemble is an urban infill and real estate entrepreneur in Northern California in the Sacramento region. He is a founder and the managing member of POI Partners LLC, a consulting firm that represents Opportunity Zone fund investors. His work represents investors and has also worked creating urban infill projects, which gives him a great perspective on our topic today, how communities can leverage a new tool created in the federal tax bill, which was signed into law in December of last year. Kimball, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So Kimball, earlier this year, governors identified areas in their states to be designated as opportunity zones to encourage revitalization in the poorest communities across the nation. Can you give us a brief overview of what this new tool is and how it can be used to spark those revitalization efforts?
2: I'm happy to. So there's a lot unknown still out there and I think that everyone needs to uh, continue to do their research because the Treasury Department and the IRS are continuing to issue guidance. But before I get into it, I want to just real quickly my this is such a new area for everyone that our attorneys have uh, demanded that I issue a quick disclaimer, and that's on all my emails and website and everything else. So POI Partners uh, LLC is providing general information, the information that I'm going to be sharing and any links that I send you to or documents that we share do not constitute legal or tax advice. Please contact your legal representative and CPA for advice on your particular situation. So all that being said, it's important uh, because uh, I have two business partners, one of whom is a CPA who specializes in specialty tax credits, and the other is a a land use attorney. So their professional lives are intertwined in what we do here. So this uh, tool that was created, as you stated, under the Tax Reform Act in early 2018 is a new mechanism. It's a new tool that we have to motivate private sector investment in underserved communities across the nation. Basically how it works is that if you have a capital gain event and think of that as anything from you're selling a bunch of stock that you've had for a long time, or you're selling your stamp collection that uh, has been gaining in value over the years. Well, that increase in, in value is subject to a capital gain tax. And so this new legislation allows you to take that capital gain and invest it into a redevelopment project or a business in one of these federally designated areas across the country. And then you are able to delay paying that tax bill up until eight years. If you hold it for eight years in that investment, then you do decrease your tax by 15%. The more important part for investors, though, is that if you hold on to that investment for 10 years, after 10 years and day one, that new investment is not subject to a new capital gain uh, tax event. So it really is changing the dynamics of how private money can come in and make otherwise unfeasible projects more feasible.
1: Great. So one of the components of this is creating an opportunity fund and investing in in projects in opportunity zones through that fund. Can you talk about what types of projects can be funded and the opportunity you see in that space?
2: There are a couple of different real estate land use uh, options that you have. You can either invest in something that currently exists and you are refurbishing it. And there are very specific rules around that. There's some recent guidance. Basically, you have to double the base value of the building. So it has to be true redevelopment. So for example, say you purchase a property for a million dollars and there is an older apartment building on there that is valued at $600,000 of that million dollar purchase. The regulations require that you have to then basically double up. You have to put in $600,000 more twice the value of the building to make it better. So you're really improving that building. The second option is to do a complete redevelopment or have just dirt, it's bare land, in which case you have to put a significant amount of money in to create a new development. So there really are some, some guidelines already in place to ensure that Someone's not just buying a vacation home and and sitting in it. You have to put a lot of money into these projects to qualify. Lastly, you can also invest in a business in an opportunity zone. That's not really my area we're working in, but businesses that are operating within opportunity zones do qualify to take Opportunity Zone Fund monies into them as well.
1: So for the local leaders who listen to this podcast, many are trying to encourage housing development because we are in such an affordable housing crisis. How can this tool help with that?
2: Well, we definitely have a a housing crisis in this country and, and absolutely in the state of California. And I think that local leaders can encourage housing development by looking at their Opportunity Zones and their communities Digging into the zoning and planning guidelines that are applicable to those and ensure that the best and highest use of those areas are really in place in the planning documents so that investors can come in with a clear path to providing the types of housing, types of new construction that, that communities want. So, really, just being aware of their opportunity zones and what kind of limitations they're placing on themselves in those areas is really a great first step in an overall effort to create a variety of more housing types across the state and across the nation.
1: So you are also an infill developer. So I'm curious how you see this changing project feasibility and profitability.
2: Yeah, in certain circles, uh, developers are seeing Rather negatively, and the recent ascendancy of a certain orange chewed person from developer to demagoguist, heck, hasn't helped any. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that for every successful and wealthy developer you hear about, you don't hear about the nine that risked a lot and failed. It's an extremely tough business to be in. So for small and and medium-sized developers like myself, this tool helps to mitigate a lot of risk because it changes the dynamics of how you finance a project. So just like if you're buying a, a home to qualify for a home loan, for me to qualify for a construction loan, I have to put down a certain percentage of the overall construction cost down in cash in order to qualify for that loan. And that's It's my capital stack. And until very recently, I was forced and many other developers were forced to include hard money, money from equity investors who were in the driver's seat and demanded pretty uh, extreme preferred guaranteed returns and outsized ownership of the final project. And frankly, that dynamic was really starting to kill projects. And so because Opportunity Zone Fund investors will accept a lower rate of return, on their investment because they can factor in the backside benefits to them, that delay in paying the tax, up to 15% reduction of the tax, most importantly, the no capital gains on the new investment after year 10. That changes the, the dynamic on financing for me because now I can start to bring in what I call cheaper money to help get a project off the ground And so projects that weren't penciling before because of increasing construction costs or, you know, for transit oriented development and infill projects, it's really expensive to put together those parcels, that dirt, because there's usually existing structures on them and you have to tear them down. So it's a lot more expensive to do infill transit oriented development than it is to just do suburban growth on on green land. So for me, I mean, I've seen it in a project that I currently have in Davis, California. It's home of University of California, Davis. And this project, Trackside Center, is located a half a block from a very busy Amtrak station, a multimodal transport center, and it's a four-story mixed-use building with uh, rental residences above commercial. I was having a really hard time making it pencil due to Increasing construction costs, and because of the the cost of just getting it entitled, and so now with the bringing opportunity zone funds into it, it actually makes financial sense, and we'll be breaking ground in the spring.
1: Congratulations. That's fantastic. So, I know that you are working with three different cities in the region the city of Davis, Sacramento, and West Sacramento on opportunity zones. How are you approaching the work with the communities? And what are some of the differences you're seeing for how each city is looking at the opportunity zones?
2: I'm having experience from both sides of the table as a developer who owns a property in an opportunity zone and then now also representing investors looking. In the city of Davis, for example, their economic development lead over there, Diane Parra, she actually called every single property owner she knew had a potential for redevelopment in their opportunity zone to make them aware of this resource, to share information. And I thought that was fantastic. That's a great example of a municipality being proactive and going out there and just sharing knowledge making sure that everyone's on the same page and i think that municipalities across the country could do that and in addition you know reach out to your local CPAs reach out to your local tax attorneys and just share information to start spreading the word so that folks can can really understand what's going on here the other difference that that i've seen between some municipalities and although i'm Focusing on three, I've actually been researching properties in a, in a variety of places throughout the state and a couple of other states. And it's striking to me the difference in the forward-facing websites that these communities have. Some of them are extremely easy to just type in an address and then up front you get all of the planning information, you know, the density, the types of uses, uh, the restrictions, their processes, and it's it's almost you know these one stop shops. And then they have a contact name and phone number for a person you can call directly in the planning department to get more information. That the municipalities that have those types of resources in place are going to be the most successful because let's be clear, this is a competition. That all that money that's out there looking to get into projects they're going to follow the path of least resistance towards the markets that they're most comfortable with. And so the more cities can do to be very clear about what their processes are and what they want, and that comes down to elected officials and staff just making the effort and being clear about it. That has been a really big difference I've seen. Some municipalities websites are incredibly difficult to navigate. You have to search down information, going through general plans, and then going through zoning code, and, and you're trying to piece it all together. So I, I really believe that those communities that have their all their ducks in a row, so to say, are going to be the most successful.
1: So you alluded earlier in the conversation to issues like zoning. I'm curious if you are seeing some of the communities that you're either working with or looking into what they have done to streamline permits or reassess their parking requirements or uh, make zoning changes? Are, Are you seeing that activity already? And if not, what would you as a developer be encouraging them to do?
2: I know that it's informing Action that is happening that that municipal leaders are are seeing this opportunity zone fund as as a potential for a big influx of of cash into and development and redevelopment and I think that probably the best example I've come across so far is the city of West Sacramento, and they're just way far ahead than a lot of cities because they've been making the effort for the past ten fifteen twenty years consistently to update all of their, their zoning and codes and specific plans to promote the type of deal that they want. In the case of the city of West Sacramento, they want to really densify their housing, which is in a couple of different areas right across the river from the state capitol around new transit areas. And so their requirements, their zoning standards are absolutely superior to some of the other things that I've seen. And you know, in some places it's harder than others to get those things updated. But it's it's a process that that must be gone through. And an interesting thing I'd like to see are minimums and maximums on on density. Right now we usually just see this. The standard has always been you can't build more than this x number of whatever. Well, in the city of West Sacramento, for example, they have minimum requirements. They have in one district that I'm looking at, it's a minimum of 40 units. Per acre, uh, with a max of 120 units per acre. That kind of guidance that says we want this to be dense and we want it to be at least this size are the kind of things that we're looking for. You know, the city of Sacramento. You referred to parking, and parking is a challenge everywhere because it's so expensive to build to build parking as part of your your overall project, especially in in infill sites. And we all want. Transit oriented development that encourages people to get out of their car, ride their bikes, ride the train, do more car sharing, all of those things. And so the more flexible that cities can be in their parking requirements. And there's a lot of different tools out there. You can do time of hour sharing where perhaps your, your residents agree that they're not going to be using their parking spots from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then during that time, your retail uh, tenants nearby or on that property can use it. Utilizing parking garages that are nearby as a way to provide parking for new projects. In-loofies are you know, not everyone's favorite, but they, they have a role. So I think that project-specific items, how close they are to transit, How much infrastructure, bike infrastructure, bike storage, car sharing spaces that they're providing should all play a role in the flexibility of municipalities being able to modify parking requirements for for the betterment of the community and for increased density.
1: I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of any public participation processes in these communities, thinking specifically of existing residents and businesses within the opportunity zones. Are you seeing efforts by local governments to reach out and involve them in this process?
2: I haven't seen much of that yet, but you and I did participate in a, a recent workshop that a local NGO, Valley Vision as coordinating to try and bring as many people to the table to talk and learn about the opportunities. I'm hopeful that as we move forward with this, that you know, we're going to see all these different people from different backgrounds and perspectives who are serious about creating livable communities throughout our country, if they come to the table. Actually, that they come to the room, they come to the space, and because there's going to be a lot of different tables. The private sector, and their interactions with with governmental agencies and with neighborhood groups needs to be a little bit more robust. There needs to be some more diverse conversations, especially if we're going to get at some of the equity issues and providing affordable housing, whether that be, you know, market rate affordable or subsidized affordable. And I'm hopeful and I'm seeing the people that should be there, the social equity groups, the the NGOs, hopefully more neighborhood type groups, especially if the cities and municipalities are serious about updating, upzoning the areas uh, that they want to see revitalized in their opportunity zones. And they most certainly should be. I should caution folks, however, though, that there's going to be a lot of instances where you may not even know. If opportunity funds are part of a redevelopment project's capital stack, that's part of a a private agreement that a developer may enter into, just like they would with any other investor. And so for some projects, we're just not going to know. But I do think that it's uh, important that we all talk about where the biggest opportunities are for true revitalization of our communities and focus on those first and get them start checking the boxes, getting those done.
1: So one of the biggest concerns that has been raised around the opportunity uh, zones and the opportunity funds is the potential for gentrification and displacement. You know, you talk about the need to bring in social equity groups, and that's an important voice in this. I'm wondering if you're seeing some of the communities you're looking at take steps now to institute do-no-harm policies to anticipate and prevent some of those risks.
2: I haven't seen anything new directly as a result of this new mechanism. But I would encourage any communities that do have those concerns to enshrine them in their planning documents and put those right up front. If you uh, a city wants to ensure more capital A, permanently affordable rental or for sale housing, then they need to start including those as requirements for all types of developments in their community. And there's so many different mechanisms out there. The city of Davis has a great plan that they've done, but yeah, you know, it brings up a good question Kate that one of the the biggest challenges or pitfalls I see happening is that we get into this dynamic of us versus them of conservative versus the liberal of NIMBY versus gentrification and I think that we've got to really set expectations correctly for this tool. This is it's not a panacea for our housing crisis. It's In the state of California, it's not a replacement for redevelopment agencies. And there's going to be a variety of project types that will result uh, from these monies. And I, I just, I firmly believe that we all, as someone who is an advocate for transit oriented development, and I've built affordable housing as part of the mix of my rental housing, but we need to embrace this tool as just another tool to achieve our community goals. I don't think that cities should be. Creating And I don't know really, they could enforce any specific guardrails or guidelines about how opportunity fund money is deployed, because I said it's oftentimes going to be private. But what they can do is, is set those expectations clearly for all development in their communities.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kimball, for speaking with us today and sharing your expertise. We are unfortunately out of time, but thank you and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time in Infinite Earth Radio.